0: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth
1: and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly and I'm a science journalist and we talk to people smarter than us and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The Bizarre, The Unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer
3: inside The Box of Oddities. Okay, we're rolling.
2: I miss going first sometimes.
3: Yeah, it's been a long time since you've gone first. We started having me go first when I was having throat issues, and we just kind of stuck with it, but... You can go first if you like. Would you like to go first?
2: That's really nice of you. Are you feeling confident about that? I mean, if you have to sit there and listen to me talk for a while, are you still going to be able to make the sounds come out of your face?
3: I'm confident that I can do that, yes.
2: Oh, that's very exciting. I'm Okay, well, now I'm nervous. Ah, jeez.
3: We should probably start before that guy with the Lexus and the glass pack muffler um, pulls into the parking lot because, oh my God, it's like he just drives around the apartment building.
2: Yeah, it might be his job. That's the only way I can figure out that he just drives around so much.
3: I think that, he just likes listening to his muffler. Really? Yeah.
2: How can he listen to anything anymore? It's I don't know. so loud.
3: He must have hearing damage by now. I, it scares Haggis.
2: I tweeted about it the other day, and there was a huge response because apparently a lot of people live near this guy. Really? Yeah.
3: Wow. Okay, then. <clears throat> I just don't. I'd like to shut the guy down, but I don't want us to be like the old couple on our balcony waving our canes and walkers. Get
2: off our lawn. Get out of our yard. damn kids. With your glass pack mufflers.
3: Like that. I don't want to be that. How do you
2: know it's a glass pack muffler? What does that even mean?
3: Glass pack muffler, as I understand it, there's not as much pressure buildup that that, uh, goes back into the engine, so it makes your car run more efficiently, Mm -hmm. maybe even add some horsepower to it. but it's really loud. They were called Cherry Bomb mufflers back in the 60s.
2: I love that song.
3: By the Runaways? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good
2: one. It is a good song. It's the only good thing about Dazed and Confused.
3: Some good music on that soundtrack. All right, anyway, go first.
2: Okay, I'm very excited. I got this topic suggestion from Brian on TikTok. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed learning about Prince Leonard. So I pulled up the article and it said Australia's Prince Leonard was admitted to hospital over the weekend with a lung infection. And I was like, did Australia have a Prince Leonard? I don't recall. And then I learned about Leonard Casley. Not the Prince of Australia, but the Prince of Hutt River Province, and not really a prince.
3: Self-proclaimed royalty? Yeah. Kind of like the emperor from San Francisco? Kind of like
2: that. Okay. Hutt River Province was sort of the second largest nation on the Australian continent. It had its own flag and currency, uh, but not officially recognized by the government. Okay, let's get into it. The principality was located about 350 miles north of Perth in Western Australia. Leonard Casley married Shirley Joy Butler in 1947, and they had a bunch of babies together, four sons and three daughters. Leonard and his family moved from his farming and mining interests near Westonia to another farming property in Hut River. In 1969, he and his older sons cleared 5,600 hectares and produced 14,000 bushels of wheat only to find that the Western Australian Wheat Board would only pay him for 10% of it. Oh my... At that time, it was common that farmers would grow their wheat, and the government underwrote the sale of that wheat, so they'd get paid at harvest time and a little bit here and there the rest of the time. Quotas left a lot of growers with a very limited amount of grain that they were able to legally deliver into the system. This is according to Pastoralists and Grazers Association of Western Australia President Tony Seabrook.
3: That title sounds like royalty.
2: Right? <laughs> he said to have grain beyond that so called quota, it was undeliverable and you had to keep it on the farm. And Leonard thought that was bonkers. Leonard was born in August of 1925. He was the son of a Calgary railway fireman. And like most farmers, he wasn't just a farmer. He was a self-described mathematician and physicist. He privately published a number of research papers and books. He served in the Royal Australian Air Force between 1943 and 1946. He was also sassy as fuck. So when the government (laughs) offered to pay him for 10% of his harvest, based on the average production of the past seven years, he was like, yeah, no. Mm. In this system, there's no appeal and there's no compensation. So he petitioned to the state governor, Sir Douglas Kendrew, and that was unsuccessful. So what do you do? You've just got this huge harvest and lost money and Leonard wasn't having it so leonard declared independence from australia and from the state leonard unearthed the treason act of 1485 that made it illegal to impede a de facto prince and so hut river became a principality but he wasn't just going to say it he wasn't just going to be like this is a principality he was going to do it
3: how does one achieve principality
2: he created his own flag and tax system The principality was governed by laws which were enacted by his self-declared government consisting of five ministers. He produced stamps and coins. He issued visas and passports. (laughs) He commissioned a national anthem. It's called It's a Hard Land. Now, the federal government of Australia did not officially recognize Hot River as an official and independent nation. But in correspondence with the governor general's office, Casley was on one occasion inadvertently addressed as the administrator of the Hutt River province, and he claimed that that constitutes legally binding recognition of his principality.
3: This guy was smart.
2: Yeah. And as I mentioned, sassafras. (laughs) Australia was like, no, we did not mean that and leonard was like too late no take backsies yep
3: had my fingers crossed
2: the family made state visits to south australia and queensland including a motorcade through a town <laughs> with his car flying their principality's flag
3: was it a motorcade of like farm equipment because that would have been hilarious
2: <laughs> it should have been <clears throat> a few years later leonard being a bit of a showman began presenting himself as Prince Leonard and granting family members royal titles, <laughs> though they, I should mention, remained loyal subjects to the Queen. Casley believed that under Australian law, the federal government had two years to respond to his declaration of sovereignty, and he says that their failure to do so gave the province de facto autonomy in 1972. This according to Leonard, meant that they were exempt from Australia's taxation. But Australian tax officials disagreed. (laughs) Leonard was advised that the prime minister, Malcolm Fraser had ordered the tax department to pursue him. Leonard said that he continued to sell his wheat in open defiance of the quota. In February of 1977, despite Prince Leonard's claims of sovereignty, he was successfully prosecuted for failing to comply with requirements to furnish the Australian taxation office with required documents. He and his cabinet responded by declaring war on Australia.
3: (laughs) This guy is sassy. I'll I'll give you that.
2: Now, the war only lasted a couple of days. And in 1978, Prince Leonard appealed the Supreme Court of Western Australia against a conviction for conducting a shop on his property without a permit because he believed he didn't need a permit from Australia because he wasn't part of Australia. Mm -hmm. Well, the continent, yes, but not the country. In about 2006, the prince was again successfully prosecuted by the ATO. He sought special leave to appeal to the High Court of Australia, but his application was dismissed. It seems like as time went on, his attempts became less and less cute. And they were like, no, we're just going to prosecute you. Yeah,
3: yeah. You were a cute little prince, and now you're just a pain in the ass. Mm. We're going to call you your ass holiness.
2: (laughs) Hutt River Province's modest success as being an independent nation, sort of, led to more than 20 micronations across Australia. (laughs) Other people claiming unfairness when it came to government dealings, including things like mortgages and, of course, taxes. People were saying, no, this isn't fair and we're not going to do it. So this is my own nation, probably not as successful as Leonard's because he was really well organized. Hut River kept gaining more and more attention. They saw tourists and sometimes over the years, dignitaries and diplomatic representatives visited their 6 building compound. And of course, his family had to have titles. They became Crown Prince Ian, Wayne, Duke of Nain, Richard, Duke of Carmel, duchesses Kay, Diane, and Cheryl. The three duchesses also constituted the Crown Council, in case you were curious.
3: I love the idea of a a duke named Wayne.
2: And the fact that he was the Duke of Nain, and that rhymes, just great. In April 2007, the prince received a message from their neighboring country's Governor General, Michael Jeffrey, on the occasion of Leonard and Shirley's diamond wedding anniversary, and they took great joy in that because other countries were recognizing them and their sovereignty (laughs) and their diamond anniversary. Sadly, Her Royal Highness Princess Shirley of Hutt, Dame of the Rose of Sharon, passed away in 2013. In 2016, the prince received a letter from Buckingham Palace. He had acknowledged the majesty's 90th birthday and received official correspondence back, thanking him for his acknowledgement of it. I imagine that's something like the thank you but no that we got from the White House after we invited Barack Obama and Michelle to our wedding,
3: wouldn't it have been cool if they came though?
2: I see he was in Maine not long after that I so know, I know. you could have bumped up your trip. That's all I'm saying. Thanks Obama.
3: You think we're joking? No, we actually really did. We did, did invite yeah, them. Yeah. yeah. Just to see what would happen.
2: In January 2017, Prince Leonard announced after ruling for 45 years that he would be stepping down. He was going to be succeeded by his son, Graham, who's actually his youngest son. Hmm. Why it was done that way, unclear. I mean, he can run his country however he wants. It's just interesting to me. That's all.
3: I feel bad for Wayne.
2: Wayne's a Duke. He's doing just fine. In 2017, judgment from the Superior Court ordered Prince Leonard and his son to pay $3 million. Oh,
3: no. Oh, no. Yeah. That put the country out of business.
2: It didn't, but it certainly made things difficult. And I don't know if it happened before or after Prince Leonard announced that he was stepping down. But it was only two years later in February of 2019, when after a long battle with emphysema, Prince Leonard passed away. He was surrounded by a prince and dukes and duchesses. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine that their family's motto, while I breathe, I hope was top of mind. That's a lovely family motto, isn't it? Unfortunately, in 2019, the Micronation was forced to shut its borders to tourists due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And then in August 2020, the principality was formally dissolved. Amidst disputes with, of course, the Australian Taxation Office demanding the millions of dollars in unpaid taxes, Mm. and also the COVID-19 pandemic. So Graham Casley confirmed to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation that the property would be sold to pay a mounting debt, but Leonard remains awesome and is kind of like a folk hero, and he remains the subject of a permanent exhibit at the National Museum of Australia in Canberra. I got my information from ABC Australia, The Guardian, the Sydney Morning Herald, and, of course, Wikipedia.
3: There have been plenty of times in my life that I've wanted to just declare my own nation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hey, don't come here.
2: Yeah, but you weren't willing to put the work in.
3: No, God, no. I had just gotten a VCR. The Box of Oddities
1: with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth.
3: I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. Recently a Swedish couple named their newborn child and bear with me while I spell it B R F X X C C X X M N P C C C C L L L M N N P R X V C L M N C His name is pronounced Albin Eric sent us an email. Hey, Kat and Jethro catching up again and just listen to Box 454 where Jethro talked about the Regency era and their pineapple obsession. Mm. It reminded me of a place I visited when my family took a trip to Great Britain. It's called the Dunmore Pineapple House in Stirlingshire, Scotland. Built in the Regency period, it had a hothouse on the on the ground floor for growing pineapples. Oh
2: my gosh.
3: The house also happens to be shaped like a giant pineapple pineapple a la spongebob squarepants i've attached the wikipedia page for you to look at it's really a beautiful place thanks for what you guys do you're the absolute best love your show love the shallow end keep up the good work thanks eric
2: that sounds amazing we got an email from jennifer lynch hello my name is jennifer lynch well at least we know she's not a liar And I'm a historian slash museum person from Oklahoma. I'm the director of the Pioneer Woman Museum in Ponca City, and I have a background in intersectional gender history in the American West, mostly involving the impact of the westward expansion. I was listening to Box 134. By the way, this person seems to have so much knowledge about stuff that I desperately want to know more about.
3: Also... Again, it never ceases to amaze us that you guys are so smart.
2: You know so much. Anyway, I was listening, Jennifer writes, to box 134 the other day, and I was prematurely decorating my museum's gift shop for Halloween. It's never too early. And Kat began talking about the history of the fork. (laughs) I stopped what I was doing, smiled the dorkiest grin, and thought to myself, I've never been happier. (laughs) Please know that I have read multiple books on historical kitchen technology, and I'm kind of obsessed. I'm also in the process of working that information into this museum. Keep an eye out for the Consider the Fork and more work from Mother if you need some good reads in this area. Nice. I am thrilled.
3: Thank you, Jennifer.
2: Jennifer, that's fantastic.
3: A fellow fork aficionado.
2: I'm more of an enthusiast.
3: But that's not just limited to fork technology. It's really all types of kitchen utensils.
0: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, And of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Did you know that Kat and Jethro learned how to produce this podcast by watching a YouTube video? Really? You could tell. This is The Box of Oddities.
2: Super excited to hear what you have for me.
3: Society has come a long way when it comes to dealing with mental illness. More and more, it's become destigmatized. We both, you and I, have spoken openly about our struggles cat diagnosed with ptsd and social anxiety disorder and i've been diagnosed with depression and social anxiety disorder which is really interesting Two podcast hosts with social (laughs) anxiety disorder which has made for some fun moments when we were speaking at large conventions or doing live shows (laughs) it's true i'm so glad we went through that together but with all the gains that we've made in the way that we treat and look at mental illness to fully understand how far we've come, we really need to kind of look back at where we were. And there were many ways that mental illness has been dealt, dealt with throughout history, most of them not so good.
2: Most of them terrible.
3: The ancient Greek physician Claudius Galen believed that almost all of one's illnesses, including mental illness, was caused by out-of-balance humors or substances in the body. And this led to procedures such as bleeding, purging, and vomiting, which was thought to help correct imbalances and assist in healing Mental illness.
2: You know, I throw up a lot when I'm feeling anxious, and it has yet to help me.
3: Actually, I always feel a little bit better after I throw up. Really? Yeah. Never. But regarding more recent treatments, the first one that probably comes to mind when one thinks of barbaric psychiatric treatments would be the lobotomy. Of course. I didn't realize this. Did you know that the lobotomy treatment received the Nobel Prize? No. Yes.
2: I hate that.
3: Dr. John H. Crystal, M.D., who's the chairman of psychiatry and professor of neurology at Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, said, quote, lobotomy was the first psychiatry treatment designated to alleviate suffering by disrupting brain circuits that might cause symptoms. Mm. And initially, in all fairness, it did show some promise, but it soon became clear it wasn't effective enough to justify the risks involved. However, on November 19, 1948, two of the most prolific lobotomists in the world faced off against each other in front of a live studio audience. Well, it, it was it was an operating theater at the Institute of Living in Hartford, Connecticut, but there was a live audience, about two dozen neurosurgeons, neurosurgeons and psychiatrists were there to observe. Okay. And it was a bit of a competition. They were demonstrating two competing ways to complete a lobotomy. Lobotomy.
2: Oh, my God. Can you imagine if there was such a thing as a lumbotomy and you had to do it while you were dancing?
3: (laughs) The lumbotomy. (laughs) So one technique, and here's a, here's a trigger warning for you. Oh, geez. They would slice through the scalp and peel the skin down from the forehead to expose the skull and then drill two holes, one over each eye. They would then make an incision with a flat blade and did what was called an orbital undercutting. Mm. This was the technique used by William Beecher Scoville. The other person involved in this lobotomy competition was Walter Freeman. Now He was a professor of neurology at George Washington University. Interestingly, though, he had no surgical training. He didn't even have a medical license, so he was operating illegally, but nobody seemed to really care too much. Now, he was developing a more simplistic approach to lobotomizing a patient. Again, trigger warning, he would use shocks from an electroconvulsive therapy machine to create an unconscious state in his patient. He would literally shock them until they lost consciousness. He then inserted an ice pick, Beneath one of the eyelids and a quick tap of the hammer would pierce the thin bone and into the frontal lobe. The ice pick was then uh, wiggled around a little bit.
2: Yeah, just give it a jiggle. Yeah,
3: and then um, pull it out and the procedure was repeated on the other orbit.
2: And from what I understand, because they didn't know much about the processes in the brain and where certain behaviors came from, it was really just kind of guesswork. He yeah. just jammed it in there and gave it a jig yeah. and then went yeah. on with your day. Yeah, it was a little... It was just random. Just jiggle the handle. Ugh.
3: The entire procedure was done in just minutes. Oh God. He said, quote, it was so simple in operation that he could teach any damned fool, even a psychiatrist, to perform it in twenty minutes or less.
2: His goal, believe it or not. Was to shame psychiatrists.
3: Yes. And then to create an assembly line approach to lobotomies so they could perform as many of them as possible as quickly as possible, up to 20 or more a day per surgeon. Kind of the Henry Ford approach to delicate brain surgery.
2: Sure, sounds great.
3: Lobotomies are rare, of course, these days and often looked at as uh, barbaric because, well, most cases they were a horrible decision. Now the Institute of Living in Hartford that I mentioned earlier was previously known as the Hartford Retreat for the Insane. It was a high-end private hospital that targeted the wealthy, and it looked like a very expensive country club. The patients were referred to as guests, uh, but they were deprived of any voice in their treatment. Once they checked in, the doctors could pretty much do anything they wanted to do, and it was a place where some of the 1940s more aggressive treatments in psychiatry were experimented with. Lobotomies, of course, also insulin comas, metrazole seizures, hydrotherapy, and pyrotherapy. Now, I didn't know what that was, but simply put, the patient was put into a device that kind of looked like a coffin. It was then heated until the patient's body hemostatic mechanism failed, and that would create an artificial fever, what about a hundred five to hundred six degrees Fahrenheit. Yep, they thought that that would. Um,
2: Just cook the crazy out of them? Yep, pretty much. That's insane. No pun intended.
3: The insulin treatment was performed by creating a low blood sugar coma. This became popular in the 30s for treating mental illness. At the time, it was believed that changing insulin levels altered wiring in the brain. And this wasn't just something that they did, you know, once in a while, all nimbly-bimbly. Insulin comas were used for decades, and it wasn't until the 1960s that it was phased out. Metrazol therapy at the time there was a belief that seizures and mental illness could not exist together yeah
2: for for why
3: i don't know what kind of science behind that all right come on obviously it's faulty so they thought that if they deliberately induced seizures then mental illness things as serious as schizophrenia would just go away. And so they would induce these seizures with metrazole, which, by the way, was withdrawn from use by the FDA in the early 1980s. Mm. The treatments were not effective, but they went on for years. However, one good thing they did come out of it, the field of seizure-related therapies did lead to more effective studies of electroshock and ECT. Now, as barbaric as some of these treatments throughout history have been, for me personally... <laughs> The most horrific ones were those ones in the 30s and 40s, because these people, they were just human guinea pigs.
2: Yeah. And that's the thing is, I have heard of people who state that they benefited greatly from a lobotomy. Yes. Yes. But because of the willy nilly nature that they were done and the frequency that they were done with very little understanding of what they were actually doing. It was an epidemic.
3: Yeah. But the idea that you would jam an ice pick in somebody's orbital socket into their frontal lobe and then just wiggle it around a little bit until Mm -hmm. you got the desired result seems, I don't know, not a very good strategy.
2: Ill thought through.
3: In the process of researching this, I came across a list of real reasons people were committed to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum between the years of 1864 and
2: 1899. Oh, this makes me so upset.
3: This list is very, very long, so I'm uh, maybe I can I can post it online. But I'm just going to highlight a few of the reasons. And again, these were real people that were committed for these reasons listed on the intake papers. Kicked in the head by a horse. Oh. Imaginary female trouble.
2: Wait, I'm sorry. So is this a person who has a imaginary problem where a female is the problem? Or it's just a female who has problems and it's just silly. What a silly
3: woman. It's an imaginary female.
2: Oh, it's an imaginary female. Oh, I don't know. Oh, okay.
3: Laziness got somebody committed. Jealousy and religion. Those were two reasons listed for one person. Masturbation for 30 years. Straight. I hope that person took some short breaks to receive proper nutrition (laughs) and also used a lubricant because, ouch, menstrually deranged. I get that. Novel reading.
2: Wait, what?
3: Yeah, reading a novel. There was a period of time in the 1800s where reading too much was looked down upon because, especially novels, because it might detach you from reality.
2: Too fanciful. It's too fanciful.
3: Tobacco and masturbation. Together? Yeah. My goodness. I don't know. Masturbation and syphilis.
2: Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, if they're masturbating, that's good because they're not spreading their syphilis.
3: I don't think they looked at it that, that way. That should back be applauded. Then. Yeah. Fever and loss of a lawsuit. <laughs> Somebody what? was.
2: Are you just saying things no, now? I'm,
3: I'm reading it right from the list. Excited by political conspiracies. Oh, well. I can't
2: say that we're free from that here (laughs) from time to time.
3: Something called
2: business nerves. All right. I think I get business nerves sometimes.
3: Deranged
2: masturbation. (laughs) Sounds like a good time.
3: (laughs) Uterine derangement. Shooting daughter. Okay, I can get on board
2: with with that. Yeah, no, that's reasonable.
3: (laughs) Women trouble.
2: Again, I have questions. Is it women caused problems or is it women... Who have problems, and that's just the generalized way of saying, well, they're women.
3: Yeah, I'm not really sure. I
2: just feel like if you're taking medical notes, that it's important to be specific.
3: And then there's this one. Somebody was admitted to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, and the reason for commitment that was given was, quote, Salvation Army. (laughs) What is that? I don't know. Maybe listening nonstop to marching band music sent them over the edge. But that's what they were. They were committed for Salvation Army.
2: And the caissons go rolling along.
3: (laughs) I think that we can all be grateful that the things that things have greatly improved. Mm. And not only the treatment of mental illness, but the way society looks at it. It's not something to, to feel ashamed of. And it's okay to reach out and ask for help. In fact, it's very empowering. You've got friends. My sources were Literary Hub. Ooh,
2: Oh, no. You were reading Literary Hub? Yeah. To the asylum for you.
3: Everyday Health. Oof. Yeah. yeah.
2: Earth, jacket.
3: Earthly Mission and Wikipedia.
2: That is so upsetting. Sometimes humans, it's just too much for me. It's just too much.
3: <laughs> I know. Take a deep breath. And as soon as we turn the mics off, I will give you a big
2: hug. That sounds
3: nice. Hey, check out our latest podcast if you haven't had a chance to do so, The Shallow End with Schneble and Toth. It's kind of like the old Darwin Awards. You know, it's people doing stupid things that, in some cases, takes them out of the gene pool. And um, Lindsay and I are old friends from from childhood, and we've been sharing stories like this for decades now. And if you want to join us, we'd love to have you. Shallowendpodcast.com. I'll put the link in the show notes, too. And we'll see you next time.
2: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
3: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And you are beautiful. And so, let it be
1: known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. The Box of Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.
2: Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friendly neighborhood social scientist and reader of books. As I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented
1: through all time, on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class.
0: Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Stuck You Here? And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess
3: by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything.